0: We have been asking the question, who is your role model? Not so much who is worthy of being followed, but whom do you follow, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether choosing to or just going with the flow. And who you choose to follow or who you are following will be indicated by your priorities and your behavior. The phrase or the term role model per Webster's Dictionary is this. A person whose behavior in a particular role is imitated by others. A person whose behavior in a particular role is imitated by others. And just as there are no shortage of role models in our world, there is no shortage of those who are considered role models but should not be emulated or imitated in any way, especially by Christians. In His grace, God has given us plenty of examples to follow and learn from. Most significantly, of course, is Himself in the person of Jesus Christ in His time here on earth. When it comes to obeying the Scriptures, it is very helpful to be able to have these role models in spite of their human frailty outside of Christ, of course. But perhaps it is their humanity that gives us hope that we too, with God's grace and with God's help, can succeed in a godly life in this world. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, after giving us that long list of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, reminds us that there is a whole host of men and women who have gone before us, who are now with God, whose lives have been described in the Bible for our encouragement and for our growth and the idea is, if they can do it, so can you. And we know from these men and women that they failed, they struggled with sin, but they upheld their faith for the Old Testament believers in their God and their coming Savior. And as I said last week, if we as believers today just go with the flow, if we do nothing, if we stop disciplining ourselves, you will find yourself flowing down the river of worldly wisdom, immorality, and laziness. And that is the exact state that we find the Corinthians in when they receive this letter of 1 Corinthians. I invite you to read our passage again, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13, and this is the third and final week we are covering this passage as we look at who is your role model. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 13, you are already filled, you have already become rich, you have become kings without us, and indeed I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For, I think, God has exhibited us us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. We are looking at, as our outline and have been looking at, seven critical areas of life that are determined by whom you choose to follow. Up until this point, it was six. It is now seven critical areas of life that are determined by whom you choose to follow. And up until this point, we have seen Paul make a comparison between the apostles, which of course includes himself, and the Corinthians, thus setting up for us two potential role models godliness and humble service, exemplified by the apostles on one hand, and worldliness and proud infighting exhibited by the Corinthians. On the other. And we saw these two groups contrasted in our first four points, thus challenging us to truly evaluate whom it is that we set as our role models in the areas of first spirituality. We saw in verse 8 Do you think you've arrived, or like the apostles, do you think you can still excel even more? Status, verse 9 Do you want to be like the Corinthians that care too much about having status in the world, or do you? Agree to be willing to be despised for the sake of Christ. Thirdly, we saw wisdom, which we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians, worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. And then fourthly, last week, we saw reputation at the end of verse 10. For the sake of time this morning, I won't go into any further uh, depth in reviewing those. So let's move on to our fifth critical area of life that is determined by whom you choose to follow And that is found in verse 11 and the first half of verse 12. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. The fifth critical area of life that's determined by whom you choose to follow is comfort. Comfort. Starting in verse 11, Paul cuts out the irony and sarcasm that he has been using thus far and he replaces them with straight talk. And with that, he also stops contrasting him and the apostles with the Corinthians and only describes the apostles are true and proper role models. And what he says from here on out is not metaphorical. It is realistic. It is true of his own life. We have seen him use a metaphor of the gladiatorial arena. Now what he is doing is he's simply describing reality for himself and the apostles. And what you're going to see is that all that Paul has said about being without honor, lacking respect, considered foolish by the world, are all played out in real time with real hurtful Discomfort consequences. In other words, what he's said thus far goes beyond exaggeration. It goes beyond mere symbolism. They truly live and are treated as the lowest levels of society. Notice, he begins verse 11 with, to this present hour. And then he continues on in the present tense. In other words, this is not just the season they endured. This is not just an anecdote of a one-time incident that they're exaggerating or being dramatic about. This is something that really characterized their ministries all the time. This is a real, present, and constant discomfort that they endured for the sake of Christ. And keep in mind, all of this, is not because before salvation and apostleship, they were in the lower echelons of society. They were treated this way because of their commitment to Christ, because of their ministry. And we understand too that many of them were just the opposite. They were in the high levels of society, at least many of them in terms of wealth, before they gave their lives to Christ. Well, There's a lot to unpack here. The first area of discomfort in our fifth point here, he says they are hungry and they are thirsty. And this speaks for itself. And know that this isn't just about a long day. You've skipped a meal. You you, you start feeling this pain in your stomach and you realize, oh, I never had lunch because of that meeting. Or maybe you had to run from office to office and you've exerted more energy than normal. That's not the kind of hunger that we're talking about. This is true hunger. This is true thirst. This is uh, uh, not being able to go on physically. You've run out of steam. And part of this was because of the apostles' extensive travel, which would most often be on foot. And these long treks would be over large areas of uninhabited land. It isn't like today where you can drive or even if you were on a bike or walking, there would be pit stops. There would at least be vending machines or water fountains or somewhere where you could buy food. This wasn't the case. There would be nothing available to buy, and even if there was, they might not have the money to buy it. You know, these days... Literally, these days, we complain about shelter in place while we get on our laptops and Zoom into our well-paying jobs and order DoorDash. They often had nothing, and not because of, of a pandemic that was out of their control, but again, because of a choice they made to proclaim their Savior. Now, again, they didn't choose to be hungry. It's not like they had food and they said, no, I'm just going to fast. I'm going to suffer for Christ. No. No. They chose Christ, and because of this, they often went hungry. If they had the ability, or I shouldn't say that they did have the ability, if they had the willingness to choose something else, they, like the Corinthians, could have lived like kings as well. And even with the churches, as small as they were and as poor as they were often, even with them wanting to help, without modern technology, the churches often didn't know where the apostles were during those travels. And sometimes they get a letter, but again, it would take days before they got that letter, and that individual may no longer be in that city or in that prison. And what we're talking about here are role models in regards to comfort. The greatest physical discomfort we often feel, is perhaps these days sitting in a chair too long, our eyes getting dry from staring at our screen, just getting tired of wearing a mask everywhere. It's silly in comparison to what they endured. I don't know if you've ever felt true hunger and thirst. Probably not. But there's nothing as uncomfortable as that, especially when it affects your ability to function and you think you might die not in an exaggerated, dramatic way, but literally, even if you've ever been on a serious diet or a fast, even if that fast is 40 days, as some Christians like to do, you don't know what these people endured. You know why? Because even when you diet or you fast, you have the option to eat if you want to. In fact, you often have to empty your full refrigerator so you're not tempted during that diet. You control when it ends. And oftentimes, you still have clean water or a little cold juice to keep you going because science has told you that you need the calories. Not so with the Apostles. As far as being a role model is concerned, we must remember that all of this was not forced upon them, but voluntary, voluntary for the sake of the Lord. Not again that they would choose to be without food and drink, but that there was a willingness to serve sacrificially regardless of what it may come. We're afraid of a a little mocking, not being invited to lunch with our co-workers. These people we're worried they may starve to death and their bodies found on a road someday. But the d- discomfort doesn't end there. He's just getting started. He says they were poorly clothed. Not only are we talking about a time when there weren't lightweight, breathable fabrics as we do, and even if you think your, your, your shirt or your outfit today is not breathable, it is very much so compared to wool, unprocessed, unrefined wool. We're talking about a time when someone wouldn't have also multiple pieces of clothing. And you remember the instructions that Jesus gave to the people that he sent out. Just take what you have on your backs because you're going to be traveling a lot. There weren't lightweight suitcases. There weren't suitcases. There weren't wheels on their suitcases. As they were traveling so much and didn't have much, the apostles would have even less outfits than if they were staying in one place. In other words, they'd have one instead of maybe two. Their garments and sandals would eventually wear out from travel. The word poorly, in the phrase poorly clothed, means inadequate, and it can refer to either the functionality of their clothing or the respectability as they walk into a town and they look like homeless people, which they were, as he'll mention in a moment. Here, Paul is probably enduring both a lack of functionality in their clothing, and a lack of respectability. The NIV says it well, they were in rags. And when you travel these long distances and nightfalls between towns where you can sleep under a roof or at least behind the gates of a city in the city square and be safe, you slept wherever you could. You've experienced this as I speak. There are a few people from our church who are camping. And they chose a campsite where they are in tents, but there is also a bathroom. So they have tents, they have sleeping bags, they have running water, they have clean water, they have granola bars and snacks, probably some sort of fire-starting and cooking device that requires no more than a turn of a knob or a flick of the thumb on their lighter. Not so with the apostles and to the point... They didn't even have clothing that was intact enough to keep them warm at night or even to keep out the insects from crawling onto their skin. What's the last thing you complained about regarding your clothing? A lost button? The tag is itchy? Too tight because you've gained weight eating all of your varieties of snacks in quarantine? I would imagine the apostles' clothing was too loose if they even measured it that way because of all the lost weight from starvation and traveling. Or the fabric was simply falling apart because it was rubbing and rubbing against the floor and the rocks, which it wasn't paved roads either. Sandals at that time, and we can go on. Keep in mind that although these were realities in that era, Okay, so I, I, don't, I don't want you to, to feel like you're doing something wrong because you're buying clothes that were manufactured in the 21st century. It is true that the, the fabrics and the, the means of travel and things like that were the reality of that time. It wasn't that they had the options to buy cotton t-shirts but couldn't. Nevertheless, we need to keep in mind that despite that reality reality for the mass population, what wasn't a reality was choosing to proclaim a Savior and thus enduring these things. Were there other people who traveled a lot? Yes, well-known and reputable people businessmen who traveled so that they can buy even more clothes and be even richer and be in higher ranks of society. You get my point. They did this for Christ. Hungry, thirsty, clothes falling apart, cold at night, bugs biting them, people laughing at them as they walked into the towns. They could have avoided all of this by just staying home by doing the easy, comfortable thing, keeping quiet. We use that phrase today, poorly clothed, not of the homeless, not of the poor. We say we're poorly clothed and we're literally panicking, angry, in despair because we can't find a thing to wear. So wear this. No, I wore that last time. Wear this. I wore that two times ago. And you can hear it, the scraping of the hanger with the weight of your clothing against that bar in your closet. Not this, not this, not this. This is how we live and we complain about that. We wonder why when when, when, when we can't even be happy about the dozen, two dozen, three dozen, four dozen, Amazon, Macy's.com, Nordstrom's.com, whatever it is that we have at our fingertips because we don't want to wear the same thing twice to the same group of people for dinner. That has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, why we can't transfer a joy and a willing to be sacrificial for the sake of Christ. We can't even do it for dinner. Paul goes on, we are roughly treated. You say, well, that seems about right. Well, thus far, he has only talked about things like hunger and clothing and not how other people have treated the apostles. They're roughly treated. They're not treated well. And before you say amen, I get this because you think your boss stopped talking to you because he found out you're a Christian. Let me explain that the NIV says brutally treated. The ESV says buffeted. It literally means to be beaten with a fist. But beaten in an insulting manner. In in other words, this is not a fist fight where they could fight back and they could say, yeah, I kind of started it. You should see the other guy and kind of feel proud about themselves. This kind of beating was a form of humiliation and punishment by authorities and others. It's what they would do to slaves and criminals it was considered the height of indignity. A policeman would lose his job right now, today, if he did this. A policeman, a.k.a. a soldier back then, would get a promotion if he did this. He would lose his job if he didn't beat these people in the face. So in that culture, this was not a badge of honor. This was not a symbol of rugged manliness. Look at this scar. I got I Someone beat me. Look how strong I am. No, it was a sign of shame. It was a sign of dishonor. You would see someone with bruises, and you'd say, is that a criminal? I see those marks. That's from the Roman centurion. Walk away, kids. Get away from that. It was shameful. And you can imagine how slowly bruises and cuts would heal, if at all, Without modern medicine and modern bandages, maybe a dirty piece of fabric and then back off onto the road again where they're scraping their knees even more and dust is flying everywhere. But wait, there's more. They were homeless, he says. They were wanderers. They had no permanent address, no fixed abode. This had social implications as well. Even today. In our, in our place, in, in California, the most respectable citizens are those who have residences, a place to call home. One of your first questions when a visitor comes to our church, oh, where do you live? Where, do you, where are you from? How would you react if they said, oh, I live on the streets? Uh, uh, oh, uh, oh, uh, sorry, uh, sorry uh, 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 do you need help? Our first thought is is Shock. How could this be? How could someone walk into our church who has no home? Culturally, these men had broken with their Jewish pasts and connections, and now as those representing Jesus Christ, they lacked a welcome in many of the towns and villages they came to serve. Jesus had even said, if they reject you, wipe the dust off of your feet, have nothing to do with them. Why did he say that? Because it would never happen? No, because it happened a Lot and it was a reality. It happened to him. Homeless. Could they have owned a home? Yes, many of them did. Many of them had homes. But they left them and became wanderers for the sake of Jesus Christ because they had to go from place to place. And we see from from the different epistles and even what Paul writes to Timothy, there, there are times where... They had to go and rely on the help of other Christians because they were near death they were so sick. I mean, think about that. I mean, it says a lot. We're focusing on the apostles, but it it, it says a lot about the other Christians as well. We don't want to let someone in our house because of the potential of coronavirus getting through the mask that we're wearing. And these people are taking care of other Christians because there was no one else. This is an apostle. He is homeless. Look at his scratches. He's clearly been beaten. This is the the apostle Paul here. Put him, get, get out of there, kids. Let him sleep on your mat on the floor. Let him heal days, weeks, months. Into verse 12, we see the last point of discomfort. And we toil, working with our own hands, we think this is good these days. And those of us who are white-collar and, and have tech jobs and don't, don't have any calluses on our hands, we think it's fun. We think it's noble. We, we pay money to go to camps where we work on farms and learn how to work the field. Not so back then. Not so today for the people who have to do that. See, the word toil is not just your average 9 to 5. It speaks of labor, hard work, working, and this is important, working to the point of weariness and exhaustion. And if you ever have worked manual labor, you know what this means. You understand why a lot of farmers and different people who do manual labor are okay with just kicking off their, their mud-laden boots and just plopping into their clean sheets with dust all over their bodies because they don't even have the energy to shower or even change their clothes. And they're so tired that their work clothes don't bother them or keep them from falling asleep. Then and now, the person who works with his hands is assumed by the upper class or the elite to be working in lowly tasks. As such, they are assumed to not give attention or care about the more lofty or superior things of life. We live in a world, thankfully, that we, even unbelievers, don't necessarily judge or look down on those types of people. We understand we need those people. We want those types of people to be paid more and and given health insurance and things like that. But at the same time, you know you wouldn't want to do it. At the same time, when you choose who you want to invite to dinner, it's not those people. And back then... Even worse, more often than not, manual labor was for slaves. It was understandable then that Greeks despised manual labor, especially if that individual had a way to get their income in another way. They wouldn't choose to do that just to get some exercise or whatever it may be. In other words, Paul is mentioning this labor as a continuous or continued indication of the Apostle's lowliness and dishonor. All of these sources of physical discomfort that we have seen thus far this morning, Paul outlines in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read verses 24 through 28, 2 Corinthians 11, which is a a very popular verse because it's where Paul really shares what he endured for the sake of Christ. And whatever you are thinking when you read these words in the English in your American context, I think you understand that it's much worse, right? Robbers are not just people who sneak into your house and steal things unbeknownst to you and you don't even know till you wake up with your cup of coffee that the glass is broken on your back door. No, these are extremely dangerous, difficult things. Starting in verse 24, 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That would have been a whip, often with little pieces of bone or shell in it, so it would rip the skin off of your back, often to reveal the rib, back of the ribs or the spinal cord. Reveal. They could see it. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's basically rocks thrown at you, and you know from the Old Testament they would do that till people died. Some of those, they didn't just aim for the soft parts of the body. They were aiming for the face the head, the ribs. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, the non-Jews, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. You know, that second part about being in the wilderness and, and lost and dangers and, and in the cold and, and, and open to the elements. Yeah, we've heard of people in the past 10, 20 years that have happened, that has happened too. Because you've seen them on their news and you've read their book and they're multimillionaires living in mansions now. That's how rare it is. And I guarantee you they didn't do it for Jesus Christ. This is Paul. And again, he didn't seek this stuff. He didn't say, yeah, I want to be beaten. I I want to be killed. But there was a willingness. So what made the apostles examples of godliness was not that they encountered these things. In fact, in our society, there are many who face some or all of these challenges because they are too focused on worldly things. People are, are willing to endure harsh punishment and different things because they want money and fame. No, what made the apostles role models of godliness is how they responded to such difficulties and their willingness to choose Christ even when that choice was the source of those difficulties. In other words, choose another easy, normal path that everyone else chooses and all of this goes away. All of this goes away. We've seen this even today. You don't hear about it much because it doesn't make major news, but there are people today in countries who by authorities in that country are saying basically the same thing. All of this goes away. Renounce Jesus Christ and all of this goes away. We will stop cutting your little daughter. She will stop screaming. We will stop raping your wife right in front of you. Just renounce Jesus Christ and all of this goes away and they start singing Amazing Grace. And a few seconds later, the daughter and the wife see their husband and dad's head tumble off of his body. this brings us back to the question, Who's your role model when it comes to comfort? You're not in sin if you're comfortable. Understand that. But a wholehearted dedication to the gospel will result in a level of discomfort simply because you are dedicated to someone the world hates. Do you get that? We live in a, a world of tolerance, And yes, though they don't like to admit it, but they have to because of their agenda. Social justice and tolerance has to bleed into how they view Christians. But we are promised discomfort. We are promised persecution. Jesus Christ said, they will hate you because they hated your master. And speaking about the world and everything going on around us, If the supporters of Donald Trump are willing to be uncomfortable and reviled in the world because of their vocal support of the president, how shameful is it that we are not willing to do so for Jesus Christ? Some of you are willing to do it for Donald Trump, but not Jesus Christ. If protesters are willing to contract a deadly virus and face jail time to proclaim a solution to social injustice, how shameful is it that we are not willing to do so to proclaim a solution to sin? That is the gospel. Are you willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of Jesus Christ. And if you have ever kept quiet about your faith, if you've ever felt guilty for a missed evangelistic opportunity, if you've ever struggled with the fear of man because of your faith, the answer to that question is a resounding no, you are not willing. I am not willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of Christ. And we haven't even touched on the physical comforts you cling to. That hurts your worship of Jesus Christ. There are some in the church who can have much in this life in regards to worldly honor and respect and even finances, and they can, because of their commitment to Christ, maintain a healthy, thriving relationship with the Lord because they give and they sacrifice and they don't care about those things. However, there are many who cannot, there are most who cannot. Because they are trying to serve two masters. I mean, think about it. How many of us are willing to work to the point of exhaustion for ourselves, for our pocketbooks, for our wives, for our kids, for retirement, but not willing to do the same for the name of Christ? Oh, I, you know, I, I, I stay up late praying and reading my Bible and I was just grumpy the next day because I sacrificed. Well, why did you stay up? Well, because you didn't prioritize it during the day. You prioritized Netflix and Facebook and laziness. You understand that this wasn't, and this goes beyond this. They, they, didn't, they weren't hungry and facing persecution because they stayed at home reading the Bible and studying the Scriptures. They did that, and they went out and proclaimed it. How can you not? How can you read the Bible and not want to proclaim that? It's like finding some famous doctor's lost journal and you're flipping through it and you're like, wait, wait, this is the cure for cancer. This is the cure for cancer. Oh, well, click, click, what's streaming today? Well, let's go to our sixth critical area of life that's determined by whom you choose to follow, and it's retaliation, retaliation. Look at the end of verse 12 and into verse 13. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. That word retaliation may seem out of place in our list, but think about it. The root sin that Paul is addressing, that the Corinthians are exhibiting, is pride. And when it comes to relationships, seeking revenge or defending one's reputation is a manifest, manifestation of pride that is a very common practice in our society. Not so much physical retaliation, especially among Christians, but, but perhaps verbal, even verbal behind their back, not directed at that individual or at the very least, sinful thoughts in our own minds. When we are accused, we want to defend ourselves. If we think we're accused, we want to defend ourselves. I found that in the church, sometimes when we're trying to encourage people and help people, they think they're being accused of what they're doing wrong or not doing, and so they defend themselves. We feel the need to speak up and accuse back. Even if we're just talking about ourselves, there's that hint of, well, you thought... You're wrong in this. It's pride. Our pride wants to justify our actions and explain away our mistakes to clarify any misconceptions about us. And understand, there's a place for that when it comes to the integrity of the gospel and your testimony, but not for your ego. When we do that, that's the world's way. What is the apostle's way? First, When we are reviled, we bless. Reviled or cursed in the NIV. It means abused with words. Not feelings hurt, abused with words. Just as it is today, back then, it was common practice for this word to be used of public speakers and especially politicians to insult and verbally abuse their opponents, to take them down. They have to do that. Politics is politics. You want to win, you got to show them how their view is wrong. But what Paul is talking about is not on the debate stage or in the media. This is personal. This is specific. There's no reason for him to bless back if no one else is watching, if all he cared about was his reputation. Again, not just insulted, abused. And rather than yell back, rather than insult back, rather than fight back, the apostles bless This Greek word is where we get the English word eulogize. So when they are abused with words, they respond by speaking praise of the other person. This, of course, can mean asking God to bless them. Both of those are the opposite of retaliation. And what that blessing entails, whether something physical or a return of words or a prayer, Paul does not specify, but that's beside the point. The point is he and the apostles do not revile back. And notice that true godliness is not just keeping quiet. It's giving a blessing. We see this in Ephesians 4.29 about our speech. Don't just stop talking when you have ne- negative speech. Start encouraging according to the need of the moment, giving the grace to those who hear it. We understand that about any sin. You don't just avoid sin. You obey and do good and hear You don't just be quiet and walk away. Say, I didn't retaliate. No, you bless. You bless. Secondly, when we are persecuted, we endure. We understand what persecution is. It literally means to pursue or to hunt. Of course, in the Scriptures, it has the idea of hostility or mistreatment because of your faith and the reality of how different True Christianity is from the world is this promise. Not this maybe, not this this might happen, but this promise from God. In Second Timothy 3:12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, as I've said before, that persecution is going to take less of a, of a physical and life-threatening form here in the United States than it will in other countries. But there will be persecution, as is promised here, if you live godly in Christ Jesus. Regardless, Paul says that when people hurt him because of his relationship with Christ, he doesn't give up or give in. He doesn't renounce, and he doesn't even keep quiet. He endures. Literally, he holds up. He bears with the person. He has patience, long-suffering with that person. And we know that patience in the New Testament is not just, yeah, okay, I'll wait 15 minutes because this line is long. It's patience, especially when you are inflicted with harm and insults and abuse. And notice that both reviled and persecuted are very similar. And it shows how utterly contemptible the apostles were considered by society. It would be easy and normal to quit or lash out when public opinion about him was so incredibly low. But he goes on in verse 13, When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. Slander means to speak poorly of someone with evil words. Right? It's not just sarcastic teasing that, that doesn't really mean anything and both parties kind of laugh evil words. And here we see the apostles go beyond just godly endurance. They go uh, proactive. They go on the offense and they try to conciliate or entreat in the ESV. It means to encourage, to comfort. I mean, think about this. When people speak evil of them, even when those things are not true, They go back and they respond by trying to comfort that person, to encourage that person. You know how this word is used? To not just because you're stuck in the situation, but to invite. To invite someone to come alongside you so that you can become their friend, to comfort them. It's similar to what I tell my boys. Especially at their age, and probably even more so as they get older. Bullies at school aren't just bullies for no reason. There's something going on. And how a great example of wanting to conciliate. Come here. Is everything okay? Your mom doesn't give you lunch. Here, share mine. I I don't know why your dad called you that, but I know you, and you're not that. You're not stupid. You're not worthless. God loves you. You're not a mistake. Whatever it may be. Right? But even for the sake of Jesus Christ, when people slander us, conciliate, call alongside. And how do you do that? How do you, especially when someone insults you for your faith, what is the number one way that you befriend? With the gospel. With the gospel not trying to make them feel better, not with psychology, but with the gospel. But well, what does the world say when you're slandered? The world tells us is that when you're slandered, you must exact revenge. You must inflict pain. Recover your honor, they say. Well, let me read for you Romans 12, 17 through 21. Don't turn there for the sake of time. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so when we do it the world's way, when we retaliate, whether it's gossip or physical or other words or even in our own minds saying negative things, you are being overcome by the very evil that they inflicted on you, but overcome evil with good. Think about all of this. The world says to retaliate. Reviled, persecuted, slandered, get back at them. At the very least, defend your reputation But it's not just the world that tells you that, is it? It's your own heart. You tell yourself that. Do you really need the world to pressure you to do what is instinctual, which comes naturally to you because of your sin? That's what we naturally want to do. Someone hurts you, hurt them back. This is who we are as sinners This is why it is so important that we don't just assume that the apostles are our role models because we're Christians, but we must actively choose them, study them, and follow them. Paul is talking about how the world treats him because of his life and ministry, his apostleship and faith. But this can bleed into any area of your life when you face this kind of treatment, not just for the sake of Christ, when you're reviled or insulted, when your husband insults you, insults your character, insults your cooking, insults your mothering, what do you do? You give them the silent treatment. You threaten to leave. You gossip to others, or even worse, gossip to your kids. You yell, you scream. That is becoming overcome with evil. Or you can reach out to bless, forgive, forget, and rekindle. Or when it is your faith, or anything, even, even, even your work ethic or whatever it may be. When someone mocks you for your faith, or even your political stance that hopefully arises out of your faith, what do you do? If the world is your role model, you get angry. You call names. You list the politician's record, and you slander his opponent. If the apostles are your role model, you say nothing aside from that which will bless and befriend that individual, which, by the way, again, must start with preaching the gospel and may end there as well. Yes, when it comes to persecution, the best response is the very message they are persecuting you for. All of these godly responses that Paul lists would have been considered weakness, especially for a man in Paul's day, and to a large degree in our day as well, which is why there's so much temptation to fight back. It's not just because it feels good, because sin feels good, justifying getting vengeance feels good, but also because we want to look tough and good in the eyes of our friends. Just as a side note, wives, don't encourage this in your husband's Don't say, why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you defend my honor? Help him in conciliation and endurance and blessing. See, retaliation doesn't just appease our anger and pride. It appeases our desire to be seen as strong and justified in the eyes of the world. But is that what Christ did? Can I give you a horrifying scenario? What if Christ fought back and refused the cross? This would be pointless because you'd all be going to hell, and that's all I would be preaching. You can't do anything. We're all going to hell. Enjoy your life now. Get out of here. Turn off your TVs. Get out of church. Go enjoy the world because you're going to hell anyways. But he didn't fight back. He accepted, and boy, did he bless. By the way, the sixth area or the sixth point in our outline is retaliation. If the apostles are your role model, you can write down that our sixth point is grace. Finally, number seven. The seventh critical area of life that is determined by whom you choose to follow. We've seen this morning comfort, retaliation, or grace. And seventhly, value, value. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. This may seem like the same as the ideas of status and reputation that we've already seen. But even those in society with low status and reputation in the world have some value. If you're blue-collar, you definitely have value for our world. Even if you're poor but you do something, you have some value. But here, Paul says that they are scum and dregs, and again, emphasizes that this is still the case with that final phrase, even until now. What is scum? It's similar to how, how we use it, physical, literal scum. It's the stuff that is removed when something is thoroughly cleansed right, maybe something you only clean uh, once a year or once every few years, right, the, the bottom crevices of your refrigerator or you move an entire dresser and get behind there. It's not just dust. It's the nasty, sticky stuff that you don't even want to touch, the stickiest, dirtiest, most reviling stuff that comes off when you do a deep clean. And what do you do with this stuff? You throw it out. I'll be honest. When I have that stuff, I want to burn it, just get rid of it. You scrape it off because it's so sticky and gross. Clearly, this is an incredibly strong insult when applied to people. This word would be used back then of criminals of the lowest class who were actually sacrificed to false gods as an offering to cleanse the city. That's how worthless they were. Fit only to be thrown away, and the, the fact that they no longer exist in the world's eyes means that the, uh, the world is a better place. Then he says dregs. This is similar to scum, but it would be the stuff that comes off when you scrape a dirty ship if you've ever done this. Uh, Maybe you can picture this, not the the clean boats that you see when you go take a walk on Pier 39 or whatever it is, but the barnacles and the seaweed and just the nastiness that you know is, is just a compilation of just dead plants and dead animals and fish waste. He says this is what we are in the eyes of the world. And if through this entire series up to this point, you were to able uh, intellectually to hold on to any worth or value that the world may have for the apostles, this should do away with that notion. And then you go back to the beginning and con- con- contrast this with the Corinthians, kings who have more than they need, the wise and honorable. And here he says, "were are the filth on the bottom of your shoe. Who's your role model? In spirituality, in status, in wisdom, in reputation, in comfort, in retaliation, in value. We look through this list and we like to think, yeah, I'm for Christ. We, you know, I'm, I'm just like the apostles, you may say. But the reality is that the more you look at this, you realize you are more like the Corinthians than you'd like to admit And here's the thing. This is very important. Look up at me. Look at the screen. In all of this, when you choose the apostles as your role model, you're not actually choosing the apostles. You're choosing Jesus Christ. Because the apostles chose him as their role model. And we've seen this throughout. In all of these areas, Christ endured and faced and chose the exact same things. On the surface, when you say, who do you want to be in this world? And you look at how bad the apostles suffered... The choice of whom you want to follow is easy. The Corinthians, of course. I don't want to be treated this way. The choice is easy. I want to have what the Corinthians have until you add Jesus Christ. Then it makes it all worth it. Then it makes sense. Nothing the apostles did makes sense if it's just for you, if it's just for you and your pocketbook and your ego and your reputation and the health of your family. And by the way, where in Scripture does it ever promise that your kids will be happy and healthy? What are you willing to sacrifice for Jesus Christ? You, you know that living for Christ, no matter how the world treats you because of it, is truly living. That's what God created man for. Not a man, man, mankind, people, to live for Him. Every single aspect of your life, from your innermost thoughts to your most public speech, when you follow Christ, living, even if you're treated poorly by the world and given nothing by the world, is truly living. That's life. It's not hard to have honor. It's not hard to be considered wise, to have your fill, because it's not hard to follow the world and do as the world does. Everyone does it. You know how you get everything the world Can can offer, maybe not the richest, maybe not the most valuable, but to, to enjoy the world. Again, do nothing. Just exist. Sleep and eat and do your job and you will get all the accolades and the praise of the world because you're just following in line. You're just one of the crowd, a lemming on the broad road. Or You can choose Jesus Christ as your role model and glorify God in everything you do, even in this world. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us, and indeed I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us Apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, and even until now, none of this, friends, makes sense without Christ. So live for Him and truly live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your goodness to us that we are able to, in our fallenness and humanness, to choose you because of what you have done on the cross. I pray that we would be people who are thankful and trust you when you do give us honor and wealth and reputation and things like that. But may we not prioritize it. May we not live for it. May we not get mad when we don't get it, whether in the world or even as the Corinthians were trying to do in the church. May we live for you. May you be our role model, Lord. And we're so thankful from even a selfish point of view that we don't have to endure a lot of what the apostles had to endure, even what other Christians endure today, but may we be willing to. May we be so content and satisfied and thrilled and joyful because of the privilege of living for you that we would excel still more. Help us, Father, to be rid of the worldly pursuits and do so now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing.